Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, space monkeys. Welcome to another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today's podcast guest is Nikki Costello. Nikki owns a studio here in Boulder, Colorado called My Whole Body. She's a Czech practitioner and an Eldoa instructor. If you don't know what Eldoa is, buckle your seatbelt. We will unpack that exercise modality. I've taken several Eldoa classes with Nikki and found them to be quite challenging. The concepts are really interesting and we'll get into it. Nikki and I also have a great discussion about fascia, what fascia is. If you've never heard of it, stay tuned. How it works, how you can exercise it, how you can improve it, how you can stretch it, mobilize it, utilize it. I also talk a bit about how fascia plays into your position on the bike. Specifically, we get into a little bit of the limitations of time trialing and how riders find it hard to get into the aero bars and hold their head low while at race pace. A central theme in the episode today with Nikki is fascia. She's an Eldoa instructor and of course, Eldoa is an exercise modality that works the fascia. It stretches the fascia, it conditions the fascia and helps people remove adhesions, fascial adhesions, which can occur pretty much anywhere in the body. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to take a class here in Boulder. Well, all classes are at home now because hashtag spring 2020. I don't think it's a hashtag, but the class was an anatomy trains course. The lab is here in Boulder. That's just coincidental. But what's interesting about this class is it's a live dissection of a human corpse and the corpse is unpreserved. So that means it gets quite real. And I found it absolutely riveting. It's something I've been considering for a long time. And before the whole pandemic COVID thing happened, I was considering taking this class live in person. And honestly, it gave me a little bit of caution because you're in a room with a dead body. And in our culture, that's not a thing that's real common. Uh, maybe in other parts of the world it is, but certainly not in the United States. Researching this course a bit, I've seen that some students are anatomically challenged and they learn a lot about the human body. But of course, on a spiritual level, they're challenged as well because you spend five days in a room with a dead, rotting corpse and you're confronted with the smell of death. You are confronted with your own mortality or perhaps the mortality of your loved ones or the prior passing of your loved ones or friends or or people you knew, acquaintances perhaps, and you might see parallels in their own passing and the passing of the person that you are dissecting. That said, the human body is like a fractal. It repeats itself over and over again on the most microscopic level. And to me, there's nothing more amazing than the structure of the human body, the biological spacesuit. In particular, the anatomy trains course emphasizes some aspects of the anatomy of the human body, and they really dig into the fascial system. In this episode, Nikki and I unpack 
quite a bit about the fascia. So this course was quite timely for me. Would have been more timely had I taken it before I recorded the episode, but that's not the way it worked out. In any case, I learned a lot and I feel as though it connected some pretty serious dots for me in both my coaching world and my fitting world. If you are interested in a course like this, I highly recommend it. We'll see if I make it back into the lab for a live course in the future. I may. There are students who do take these repeatedly because the human body is so fantastically complex. You can kind of just keep learning on that in that paradigm forever. There are no prerequisites for this anatomy trains course, the live dissection course. That said, there are professionals from pretty much any walk of life you can imagine. There are different doctors, there are physical therapists, there are manual therapists, acupuncturists, sports trainers, uh, anyone else who works with human bodies can end up in this course and learn a tremendous amount. I mean, it's helpful to have some anatomical knowledge and training going into it. That said, uh, you learn so much during the course that you're kind of drinking from the fire hose. I would argue almost no matter what your prior experience is. So it took Tom Myers, the, the founder and grand wizard of anatomy trains quite a while to agree to put this course online uh, for obvious reasons. Um, the point is to dissect a, a human cadaver and see it yourself, to do it yourself, to feel the tissues, to cut through the tissues, the fascia, to figure out where the fascial connections are and understand how strong they are and how pervasive they are throughout the body. I mean, these are concepts that I understood intellectually, but to do it is another thing entirely. So of course I missed that, that tangible experience of feeling those tissues and cutting them with a scalpel. However, they did an amazing job of filming this course and getting cameras in all kinds of nooks and crannies and removing of organs and showing us different views of different structures. So yeah, it wasn't the same experience had it been a live course, but that said, I'm really glad I took it and it was definitely worthwhile. Learned a tremendous amount. Uh, one side note, Nikki and I do unpack a bit of conversation involving the term EMFs, and I failed to define what those are. In case you don't know, EMFs are electromagnetic frequencies. These are the little waves that come out of your computer and your cell phone, your television, and any device that produces an electrical field. To expand, there are native EMFs and non-native EMFs. Native would be considered electromagnetic frequencies generated by natural sources, such as the sun. Non-native EMFs come from 5G towers. If you want to go down the wormhole of conspiracy theories, just Google 5G tower and have fun with that one. You can get lost for a whole afternoon. In the meantime, enjoy this episode with Nikki. Nikki Costello, welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thanks, Colby. Thanks for having me. Why don't we begin by giving us, we'd love to have some context about who you are and what you've studied and where you're from, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm Nikki Costello, and uh, the business I have here in Boulder, Colorado, is my whole body health and fitness coaching. I grew up in a very tiny town called Rachel, West Virginia. And I call it Tiny Town because it had a population of like less than a thousand. Coal miner's daughter. Dad was a coal miner. Mom was like classic stay-at-home mom. So um, 
grew up competitive gymnast most of my life, ended up going into cheerleading at the University of Kentucky after that for school. Um, ended up in that direction because I injured myself quite a bit in gymnastics and uh, had a lot of spinal injuries, head injuries, rib cage, wrists, knees, all kinds of things. Wow. Um, Is there anything you missed? <laughs> I don't think so. I actually don't think I missed anything. Okay. So I was pretty beat up with gymnastics. And I kind of got to that place where it was like, do you want to keep pushing through this and pushing through these injuries? You know, your, your body's getting really beat up or are you going to kind of step away from, from the sport? I chose to step away from the sport and it was super hard. Mary Loretton was totally my idol. She grew up just down the street from me, not far away. My first gymnastics, gymnastics coach was her gymnastics coach. That's pretty cool. Before she started training with Bella Caroli. Mm. So it was, it was pretty intense. It was an intense childhood of competitive gymnastics. You know, I ended up becoming, kind of getting into health and fitness coaching because of my injuries mm. predominantly. Um, I was in a place where uh, in my early mid-20s, I was just wrecked from all of the athletics and so I started trying to find different ways to heal my body and kind of figure things out and figure out performance um, without medication, without surgery, without, you know, all mm. of the typical Western medicine routes of trying to heal. And I actually had that experience once. When I very first moved out here, I worked with a PT um, who tried to help me with some of my neck injuries from all the head traumas and car accidents and things of that nature. You know, she, she helped me tremendously and I learned a lot from her. But uh, while I was working with her, she herself was actually in a car accident. Mm. And that totally changed her approach to working with me. Like once that had actually happened to her, she said, wow, you know, I, I realized I've been teaching people these things all of my life. And now that I'm trying to do them myself with this injury and I can't do these exercises that I'm like insisting people work on. And so it was a pretty profound moment for her. She was just like, it, you know, it completely changed the way that she approached her clients. Interesting. And so that was really, really yeah. cool to see. Yeah. Tell us a bit about all the cool things you've studied on this path to become the healer. You know, I started out just as a general personal trainer. Like that was kind of my, my study. I studied with just Nesta personal training. It's just like a, you know, generic personal training certification, nothing fancy at all. And um, in 2005, I had my first interaction with, uh, with the Czech practitioner. Um, Terrence Thomas. And he ended up becoming a very dear friend and mentor of mine. And at that time, he, he said to me, he, was, he said, if, if you start kind of going down this path with Paul and the Czech Institute and, and taking your education further, um, 15, 20 years from now, when people actually catch up to this, you're going to be ahead of, you'll be ahead of the curve. Mm. And that's totally proven itself to be true. Mm -hmm. And so in 2005, I started kind of headed down the path with the Czech Institute and started um, studying with Paul and did my holistic lifestyle coaching and things like that. Okay. Um, but I mentored quite a bit with Terrence. And yeah. so I spent a lot of time learning with him and just doing continuing education through the Czech Institute. Okay. Um, so that was a big big influence in my education. Um, I studied with Stop Pilates. Um, I chose to study with them because of their, um, they had a very heavy influence in physical therapy. And so their method of Pilates was very rehabilitation based. And at that time, they were one of the only, um, you know, institutes for Pilates that, was, that were really focusing on um, rehabilitation, post-surgical stuff, um, postural correction, like really using it 
in a therapeutic way versus just Pilates, we're going to strengthen your core. You know, you're going to get leaner, stronger, that kind of thing. So or they were ops or whatever. Yeah. 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 And so okay. Stott was a huge influence for me then. Um, and then most recently in the last number of years, that's where I've started studying with Dr. Voyer with okay. Guy for Eldoa and the Soma Therapy Program. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's let's bust into Eldoa. The reason I got into Eldoa and kind of how I went down the road of Eldoa was that given my history of injuries and um, kind of postural patterns and things of that nature, there were always certain things that I, I still had a really hard time fixing. And I, you know, people work on me, great physical therapists, great neuromuscular therapists, acupuncturists, chiropractors, you know, the whole deal. I was doing everything, yoga, Pilates, corrective stuff with Paul, whatever. But there were still these longstanding patterns in my body from gymnastics, from the trauma from gymnastics that I really couldn't unwind. That I, you know, there was just certain, certain spots that just wouldn't, wouldn't let go, wouldn't change. And, um... I had a young woman who worked with me for a little while who was fully trained in Aldoa and somatherapy. And I had never done Aldoa, had no idea what it was. And I was like, well, this is interesting. So we'll, you know, kind of see what this, what this is all about. She and I got together one afternoon. She goes, okay, we'll go through a session. I'll kind of show you what it is and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. And in that very first session, you know, she immediately saw my pattern. You know, she knew what was going on in my body. Um, she was also a Czech practitioner. So she had gone through the entire Czech program and then gone through the Eldoa and Soma therapy with Dr. Voyer. We did, I think, maybe less than five different movements, like five different Eldoa postures. And when I stood up, my entire neck and spine where it always stuck completely adjusted like the whole that whole pattern that was always sticking completely shifted and adjusted mm-hmm. and it was just like my my whole system my whole nervous system opened up it was just like being in a, a totally different body and um it was you such a, a to, it was a total reboot nice. like it was it was impressive like i stood up and i was just like wow mm-hmm. this is incredible and then i stood there going why don't why don't I know about this? Yeah. And why don't more people know about this? Like mm-hmm. what what's the deal here? Mm-hmm. Um so then I set, you know, kind of set off down the path of learning about Aldoa and trying to figure out what it what it what it is, what it does, and um started studying Aldoa with Dr. Voyer. So maybe you can describe a little more specifically what an Aldoa yeah. session would look like. If a client came to you and they took an Aldoa class or you you gave them a few poses, what, what does that look like? How does it feel like? Yeah. So technically what Eldoa is, is longitudinal osteoarticular decoaption. That's, that's, the, that's the technical term for Eldoa. Right. And basically what that means is that we are creating space in any specific given joint. So you're, you're actually creating space between the vertebra. It could be the knees, the hips, the shoulders. So you're creating space in a given joint. But it's creating space in a way that it's actually pumping fluid into the joint. So there's decompression where we just create space, but then there's what's called decoaption. And in decoaption, we create space, but then it pushes fluid. So lymph, cerebral spinal fluid, synovial fluid, Mm -hmm. uh, minerals, vitamins, nutrients, water into that space, which promotes healing in that space and in de- in decompression. And so the Eldoas are technically 
if you, you want to call them myofascial stretches. And what you're doing is putting your body in a position, in any given very specific <laughs> position, um, where you're twisting your fascial system. So you're basically taking the fascia and twisting it into a figure eight. And what that does, it's if you think about like wringing out a washcloth, right? You take mm -hmm. a washcloth, you wring it out in that, that twisting motion and it pushes fluid out of the washcloth, it's wet. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing with Aldoas is putting the body in very specific postures that take the fascial system and kind of wring it out so it pumps fluid throughout mm -hmm. the body. Mm -hmm. um, the cool thing about the Aldoas is that you're, you're addressing the entire system. So even though we might be focusing on one specific joint or the shoulder or the hip or the knee, whatever it is, um, because you're dealing with the fascial system, you're addressing the entire system. You're addressing your organs, you're addressing your intestines, your pericardium, your heart, all kinds of things. Because fascia runs through the entire body. Exactly. Right? Right. So maybe we can take a moment just to define fascia on its own because yeah. I think a lot of people and a lot of my clients who come in to work with me and my fit studio, I use the word fascia and they kind of look at me quizzically. Yeah. They don't quite understand what it is. So yeah. Fascia has become, you know, it's one of those things that's, that's starting to become kind of a hot button word for people. They're like, fascia, myofascial release. We do mm -hmm. fascial this. We do fascial that. And um, so it's starting to become more popular and more of a, a term that people are getting a little more familiar with. Um, but generally speaking, I think most people don't know. <laughs> they really don't know what it does. They don't know how it works. They don't know how it functions. Um, so the, I think the best way to describe it and the way that I describe it to people in class is that, you know, you're, it's like if I took a piece of cellophane and pulled it over your head and wrapped it all around your entire body, all the way down to the bottoms of your feet, through your toes, your fingers, and just mm -hmm. wrapped you up like cellophane, that's kind of the idea you want to think about when you think about fascia. Without killing you. With, without suffocating you. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because it wraps the entire system. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's made of these tiny interwoven fibers. And yep. so those fibers are, I like to describe them like fishing wire. You know, they're very fine. They're very thin. And they're actually tubes. Mm -hmm. And so most people don't realize that is that those little fascial wires are tubes that fluid travels through. And um, that fascia doesn't just sit on top of your muscles. And so a lot of people think that it's, it just sits on top of there and it's like this layer kind of between the skin and between the muscles. Those little fibers actually permeate all the way down through the muscle into mm -hmm. the bone. Mm -hmm. So it, it, is, it is connective tissue. It just it weaves everything together like a spider web. So it's not just a, a sheath of um, cellophane around the muscle. It's a sheath that travels through the muscles right. as well, right? In exactly. between the organs. Yeah, exactly. And so if we didn't have fascia and we stood up, our muscles would kind of hang from our skeleton like jelly. They would... Because assuming they weren't contracted. Right. Right? Exactly. If, if the fibers aren't contracted, if they were completely relaxed, the muscle, if you stood up and your arm was at your side, your bicep would, would fall down and sag at the bottom. It would right. kind of look like a exactly a lumpy ball at the bottom, right, with this thin, long. So the fascia kind of organizes a little bit, kind of contains it, but totally. also travels through it. So is that is that right? Yeah. So when your fascia is tight or bound up, these little clumps of proteins, as I understand it, can kind of get stuck to the fascia and glue the fascia together. Absolutely. And that prevents the muscle from doing its function, which the muscle should glide smoothly through the fascial sheath, right. which would kind of be the outer sheath of fascia that surrounds the muscle and contains it. 
but also if those little protein chains are, are glued and stuck together and causing the fascia to, to be too constrictive within the muscle, then the fibers can't fire properly in a proper sequence. Exactly. So that's where you get exactly what you were describing, which is even though I've had PT and massage and acupuncture and all these yeah. other treatments, I've still got areas of my neck that are just locked up. Yeah. Yeah. You and know. this is where you'll, you'll um, also hear people, you know, clients of mine come in and they're like, well, you know, I've gone for this, this great rolfing session and, and I felt great for several months, but then everything came back. Mm. You know, I went, I saw this great massage therapist, felt great for a couple hours and everything came back. Yeah. I got a chiropractic, you know, yeah. like there's always this something that they're doing, whatever it is, um, that they get this kind of instant relief from that could last a few hours, a few days, a few months. Um, but because we're not really dealing with the health and wellness of the tissue via the fascia, right. which delivers all of the nutrients and the fluid to the system, mm -hmm. then you don't achieve real change. Yeah. You know, you don't change that. You don't achieve that permanent result before. Yeah. The last podcast I did was with Charlie Merrill and he described that phenomenon of chiropractic massage, Reiki, you know, yeah. whatever you're doing, um, as he said, unfortunately, a lot of the science and our our common experience has shown us that a lot of those modalities end up being very transient. So, okay. which doesn't make them invaluable. No. If you're in a lot of pain and you go to a chiropractor and you feel better, then right. I mean, that's without getting down the nuance of whether or not chiropractic is actually healthy. Like, yeah. what I'm saying is, superficially at least, if you have pain and it's relieved, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. But ultimately, I think most people would prefer a long-term solution. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. And my big thing, when it one of the things that I love about the Aldoa system and kind of what Doctor Voye is doing, and and part of you know what Paul does is that. Um, you know, I think it's just really important to give people tools. Mm. You know, I'm there's nothing worse than dealing with somebody who just wants to be fixed that shows up to fix me, fix me, fix me, fix me, touch me, push me, twist this, do that, whatever. Like I want to give people tools. I want to give people things that they can use that will correct their bodies that they can, they can do on their own. <laughs> you teach people how to fish. <laughs> it's a, totally. Exactly. Right. right? You want to yes. teach people to fish. Yep. And, um, not to mention, you know, and I was, I was on that merry-go-round when I was injured. So when I was in my, the early mid twenties and kind of all those injuries had really taken hold and my fascial system was a wreck and my nervous system was a wreck. I was totally on that merry-go-round. I was acupuncture every week, chiropractor, massage, mm. um, every, I mean, it, it was like a part-time job trying it's to keep my body together. Expensive and time oh consuming. God. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's, 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 it's exhausting, especially when mm -hmm. you're not really achieving the level of performance that you're used to having. Right. And so you come into those kind of places, as you well know, it's like when you're used to being a high performance person and you're used to your body running at a hundred percent. And then all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and it's 95%. That's like the end of the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it's 90%. And then it's like, Oh God. And then God forbid, you know, it, it just keeps going down from there and yeah. you're, you're doing everything you know how you think that you're, you know, you're listening to everyone, you're following instruction and you're never getting back to that hundred percent. Mm. And that's, that is very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I see that happen with so many, um, so many athletes, so many people in general where, you know, they, they come to me and they're like, I used to feel like this, you mm -hmm. know, I used to look like this. I used to be able to do that. And, um, 
there's just this like level of exhaustion. They're like, I'm spending so much time, so much energy doing all this stuff and I'm just not getting there. Yeah. I have that experience a lot. I have a client intake question and, uh, before I do a bike fit with them. And one of the questions is how many rides out of the last 100 would you say are flow state rides? Right. And I kind of define, I break that down a little bit, but basically it's, you could just go ride your bike and do whatever your goal is. If your goal is a bunch of intervals and you want to go hard, you can focus on those intervals. If you just want to ride your bike and, GRA and look at the deer and, you know, stop for coffee that then right. you're able to do that without some pain or dysfunction or sensation of twisting right. or wrestling with saddle position or cleats or whatever, yeah. interfering with your, and the number of riders who say 100 out of 100 are flow state rides. I've yet to see one. Wow. Um, but the, but what's even more really of a bummer and a bit shocking is that the number of rides the number of riders who list a high number of those rides as being flow state is very low. Right. So it tells me a lot. There are a lot of broken people out there. Yeah. Um, that said, I recognize that I see my profession is to fix people, <laughs> at least in the world of cycling, or help them, give yeah. them tools, I should say, to fix themselves. <laughs> yeah. Education is part of my process as well. So, um, it's not necessarily a great business model, but you know. <laughs> right? No, it's not. You put yourself out of business that way. It's kind <laughs> totally. of the opposite of the disposable electronic device or Absolutely. whatever. That's yeah. okay. You yeah. know what? There are a lot of people on this planet, and there totally. are a lot of people who are struggling with yeah, with health and with their bodies. Absolutely. I mean, Paul tells us that all the time. He says, if you can't make good money in this modern day and age, then you're doing something wrong because yeah. you're fixing broken people and you've got a lot of tools in your your tool shed. Absolutely. Right? So, yeah, interesting. Okay, so. I've taken a few classes with Nikki, a few Eldoa classes, and I'm going to just give you my own personal view of what a single Eldoa pose is like. Each one lasts 60 seconds. And imagine doing an exercise. Well, okay, in comparison, we look at a conventional exercise, like pick a normal gym exercise, even something moderately complex like a kettlebell swing. If you've never swung a kettlebell before and you're learning how, there are quite a few cues you have to pay attention to, right? You can swing the bell in the right way. You have to have the right amount of grip. Let the bell move a little bit more. Don't cast the bell too far in front of you, etc. Eldoa in Eldoa in a, in a single Eldoa pose, the list of cues is extensive. It might be fifteen or twenty items, and that makes it not boring because you always have a lot of things to concentrate <laughs> on. It also means that your instructor really has to have have their acting gear. And they need to be in touch with the clients and what they need, but also constantly refreshing your memory on what to do because it's easy to forget some of the cues. Yeah. And the reason is that in most of the poses, you're actually, they, these are primarily, well, they're all, to my knowledge, isometric in yes. nature, right? Um, believe Maybe. it or not, they're actually not. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's one of the misconceptions. Uh, probably common misconceptions about the Aldoas. Um because if you think about an isometric contraction, right, it's just a holding position. It's, isome it's isometric. It's just like this holding. So let's define that just so people know. Like yeah. an isometric, uh, think of a wall squat. If you put your, you your back against the wall and you held your knees at 90 and you just you just stayed where you were as long as you could, that would be isometric, totally. right? Okay. Yeah. And so the, the reality of Aldoa is that um, you're never not moving. And so because the fascial system is changing throughout the entire posture. So as you are starting to move fluid and those fibers start to slide across each other, mm. um, because what, what most people don't realize is that fascia doesn't actually stretch. So it's not 
it's it's not stretchable, right? It doesn't you can't stretch it like a rubber band. Those tiny little fibers glide. They actually glide and they skip around from one fiber to another mm-hmm. to to create the movement. So they glide and they skip from fiber to fiber to create that movement. Mm-hmm. And so as we get into the Aldoa posture and that fluid starts to pump and things start moving, um, you start gaining more range of motion. So you Mm -hmm. start gaining more muscular contraction. You start gaining more space. So then you can go deeper. Totally. So then you can go deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that. I felt that during poses. Yeah. Pretty powerful. Yeah. It feels isometric for a lot of people. Okay. Only because they get get there and it's often very hard. It's very Mm. challenging. And... um, they, you know, they get into the posture and they're like, oh. <laughs> when there's this like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. And it feels like nothing's moving, right? Yeah. And so it feels very isometric. Most people think that it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Thank you for expanding on that. So it's a non-isometric pose for 60 seconds. Yeah. Your instructor's cueing you on what to do. And in most of the poses, the fascia is being stretched almost from tip to toe, we'd say. Always. Right? Yeah, I mean, well, there are a few where one arm is resting, for example. Yeah. And so you're not necessarily applying a lot of tension in that resting arm. Is that accurate? Right. right? Um, what you're doing with your resting arm is that, so what we're always working with in Aldoas, in Aldoas are that, is that figure eight or the lemniscat, lemniscate is what it's called. And so What's when you- What's a lemniscate? What's that? What, what is that? Is that some sort of strange animal? <laughs> It's the the elusive lemniscate. (laughs) I saw one on the way to the office. Scurried into the bushes. (laughs) Okay, tell us what that is. What's a lemniscate? So uh, a lemniscate is just a fancy word for a figure eight. Okay. So like if you put that into the into your into your Google bar, it's gonna pop up and it's gonna look like kind of like a helix, right? It's Uh gonna have this kind of helical form of like the MC Escher with the the track with the ants. Yeah. You know that picture? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm full of weird obtuse references. If you don't know who MC Usher is, <laughs> go forth and find the go internet searching. Go forth and find it. Okay. Um, so basically you're creating those figure eights, those lemniscates throughout the body. And what happens when you have a hand that's actually fixed and not in a, technically in your mind, you think it's not moving. Um, you're creating a fixed point to twist the rest of the fascia around. So even right. though that hand and that arm is fixed, it's still... And not active. And not... Uh, not contracted. It actually still is contracted. Okay. It's supposed to be contracted. Yeah. Oh. So I might not have been cueing you very well. I've been doing classes. it wrong. Uh-oh. <laughs> 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 you need to talk to your instructor about right? that. Okay. Um, so when that hand is fixed, it's actually... You are, you are actively trying to rotate the arm, kind of... Um, think of corkscrewing it into the floor. Mm-hmm. So if you, it's like, like if you're trying to screw something into the floor, that's kind of what you're doing with your arm. Okay. So it's actually very active in creating part of that lemniscat or lemniscate. Yep, yep. And then you're mm. building around that. Okay. Yeah. One concept I've been having a lot of conversations with about my clients recently is, well, like we talked about the definition of fascia, the concept of fascia. Yeah. Um, the descriptors that I use to kind of illustrate are when you go to the supermarket and you go to the organic produce section. <clears throat> Not the conventional one. Right. <laughs> we don't do that. And you get, yes, thank you. And when you get your potatoes, you get a bag of potatoes. They right. come in that little black mesh bag. And that's how I kind of think of fascia. That's how I describe it to my clients, It's which is similar to your concept. 
Um, it's like a, a net sort of, and it goes around the muscles, but also through the muscles, right? And this web of connective tissue, it has a massive impact on our function, in particular when we are under load during exercise and we are at a close to or at maximum range of motion. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty excited. I'm just going to just going to tell you, I signed up for a course that starts tomorrow. It's Anatomy Trains with Thomas Myers. It's oh, a yeah. live dissection online. Oh, it's they're four doing days. It online. They moved it That's to online because they were kind of forced to. That's super exciting. And I was considering attending this class in person anyway. So this oh, is yeah. a pretty unique class Absolutely. for those of you who don't know. Uh, if you want to find out more, check out Anatomy Trains. We'll, we'll make a magic internet portal yeah. on our linky page. Anatomy Trains, one of the concepts that really mm -hmm. Thomas Meyer's teachings are all about fascia and how fascia impacts our posture and our movement through the world. And if you want to see some really cool posters, which Nikki has hanging in her studio, and I subsequently ended up ordering and putting in my studio because I thought they were so useful and illustrative. They're helpful. Yeah. They're very helpful. Are the Anatomy Trains posters, which which label and illustrate lines of fascia as they travel through the body. And you can see, for example, one of the deep posterior lines of fascia travels all the way from the Achilles literally to the crown of your head. So if you're on a time trial bike, for example, people can't figure out sometimes why it's hard for them to hold their head down in a low aerodynamic position in line with the torso when they're in aero bars. So let's look at our checklist. So if you have a, imagine that you've got, imagine you're standing upright and we taped a string to the back of your heel and we ran it all the way up to the top of your head and we taped it to the top of your head with imaginary super strong tape and the string did not stretch. Okay. So now, this is when you're standing. Now I'm going to have you fold at the hip like you do in a time trial position. So you're going to put your butt way out behind you. You're stick, out, stick your butt way out behind you. And that string's going to gain, the tension's going to go up on that string because you folded forward, right? Hopefully everyone sees that. But now imagine that that string had two extra branches that went from about the middle of your back to the ends of, to the ends of your collarbones. And again, this is non-stretchy string that's attached with super, with super glue. Just say super glue. It's not healthy. Don't do this at home. <laughs> but this is a thought experiment. So we can play with these things. So now you're going to take your hands from the standard road bike position and you're going to pin your elbows together. And that's going to pull your shoulders in and towards your ears. So now we have increased the tension on the two strings that came from the center of your back. And that is also pulling on the center string. Right now, obviously the center string has to split at your butt to go down each leg. Just roll with me. So when we look at our time trial bike checklist, we're folding at the hip, we're pinning the elbows together. So when we're, when we put you in a time trial position, when an athlete assumes a time trial position, they're going to fold at the hip, probably maximally because you're trying to be aerodynamic. So you need to horizontalize the torso, right? The more upright the torso is, the less arrow you are, the more we make you horizontal, the faster you go. Then we're going to pin your elbows together, which kind of pulls your shoulders in towards your chest. And now we're going to ask you to pedal with some semblance of normalcy, which means we want your heels to be close to flat. And that increases the tension on that posterior line, right? Now I want you to drop your head down as close to your hands as possible. Again, pulling on that line. Now go as hard as you can. So Nikki, what happens to fascia when muscles are exerted and they contract and they 
have to increased blood flow and increased O2 demands because of increased metabolic load from aerobic activity. Fascia gets tighter, right? It becomes yeah. more restrictive. Totally. Yeah. When you're also dealing with the, the nervous system itself. And so when we think about the fact that the autonomic nervous system communicates through our fascial system, mm -hmm. which is a lot of people forget that, um, you know, you put yourself in a high performance situation where your nervous system is more in a fight or flight <laughs> performance state and it's in that parasympathetic uh, yep. or sorry, sympathetic mode. Now their whole fascial system is totally bracing itself mm -hmm. to run from the tiger, right? And so you've got the nervous system kicking, running through the fascial system, putting that load in there and now everything's just tense everything contracts everything contracts yeah and so it's not going to move as well things aren't going to perform as well like your posture nothing is going to perform quite as well right if that fascial system isn't rendered healthy right, right. if that tissue isn't healthy yeah yeah and in case you're wondering as soon as you cross functional threshold power for any duration of time that is the transition zone between it's not just when you stop shuttling lactate or, or, well, I should, let me rephrase that. You're still shuttling lactate, but it's not when the bathtub overflows and you can no longer <laughs> consume all the lactate you're producing. It's not only that point. It is also the point when you firmly transition from a balance of parasympathetic and sympathetic stress to full sympathetic. It's kind of the definition of threshold. Right. You're going as fast as you can. Yeah. Right. So think about it from a neurological perspective. If tigers don't run for very long duration, but as soon as you saw a tiger and it began to chase you, you would run as fast as you could. Instant sympathetic mode button, right? right. It's like the ludicrous button in the Tesla, I exactly. suppose. So that places that global strain on the fascial system and on the nervous system. And the most common compensation I see for that in a time trial rider, which is our textbook example, is they can do all these things when they're riding along in zone two or a moderate pace. But as soon as you put them in a race situation, what happens is the global load on the system is too high and the relief valve is the head pops up and oh, yeah. periscopes up from the back. Yeah, there you go. So if you want to see this in action, just go find your local time trial from 2019 because <laughs> we don't have those anymore apparently and flick through your local photographer's photo line and see how many riders are riding with a face that's really vertical to the, you know, vertical to vertical. Doesn't need to be reference to the horizon. Vertical is always vertical, Pierce. But they're riding with a vertical face and their head is well above the height of their torso. Yeah. And that is, that may, now it's possible some riders don't know that they're riding that way. That's quite possible. But in general, I think most TT riders, especially in 2020, know that we want to keep your head as low as possible. Right. So they may not be capable of that. Totally. This is a challenge for bike fitters because until we see a rider at race pace when that sympathetic mode kicks in, we don't really see the whole picture. Right. We don't see a lot of things in life until sympathetic mode kicks in. <laughs> well said. Well said. Yeah. Okay, so rewinding just for a moment back to one of your first descriptions of Eldoa, you were talking about the wet towel being wrung out. Yeah. Now, so if I have a wet towel and I wring it out, all the water comes out. Mm -hmm. But the end result of Eldoa, of course, is not to have a dry, crunchy towel. Of course. So what's one of our prerequisites for Eldoa? What do you tell people before every class hydration. hydration hydration is life right hydration is life yeah it's i mean that is one of the things that it seems so so simple and just 
it, it, if they're in, I mean, you know this, like when people come in, one of the first questions I ask them is, you know, I dealt with a man who came in today. He was kind of not planned, last minute client, came in, back pain, spine pain, athlete, runner, biker, cyclist, you know, at first thing I looked at him. How much water are you drinking every day? Mm. Oh, I drink plenty of water. I do this, I do that. I'm like, okay, how much water do you drink? And then when I told him how much water I want him drinking, he was like, oh, actually, I don't drink that much mm-hmm. water. Yeah. And so the thing about our fascial system is that it cannot function properly if the fluid isn't there for it to pump. Mm-hmm. So if we are at all dehydrated, if we are the, the, the tiniest bit dehydrated, that fascial system starts to become compromised thus rendering our nervous system compromised so it's like this cycle that starts you're kind of always running with an engine that's not quite firing exactly capacity right yeah and well but we don't have to worry about that we live in colorado i mean it's like 19 percent humidity here all the time one thing i think that i've learned from racing in colorado especially at very high altitude is how important hydration is uh in particular because at that altitude, the air is so dry that with every exhale, you're losing moisture out your breath. Absolutely. This is the equivalent of leaving your refrigerator open and hoping it will cool your entire house. <laughs> That's what we're doing because the moisture content in your body wants to equalize just through physics with the moisture content outside the body. Yeah. That means we're constantly losing moisture, even if you're not working out and sweating. Yeah. I think that's a bit of a misconception that maybe some people have. They think, oh, well, I didn't ride today or I didn't run today. I didn't yeah. sweat very much or I did my workout, but it was really quite cold. Yeah. If it's cold and dry, you're losing moisture like crazy. Yeah. People don't right? realize that. The yeah. other point I'd like to touch on I think is important is that I think as people, we, we tend to think of hydration on a timeline. We tend to think of it as immediate. Yeah. How hydrated are oh, you right God. now? You gave your client his pop, the pop quiz. How hydrated yeah. are you right now? Well, yeah. right now I'm pretty good. Right now is important, but also think about all the minutes of your days. Yeah. Meaning if you don't drink water for eight hours of the day and then you go home and you realize how thirsty you are, or even if you're making a newfound effort to look after your health and you decide you're going to hydrate more right. regularly and you drink a ton of water, that doesn't fix the last eight hours where you had uh-huh. subpar performance at work or on your workout or when you were having lunch with your wife or whatever you were doing that you maybe wanted to be present for yeah. and fully able to function at your best ability, yeah. right? Well, and I think, you know, one just to speak to that, what, what most people don't know or realize is that, um, you know, people walk in our door, I'm going to say nine out of ten people are dehydrated. Technically, they're dehydrated. I mean, I've had people walk in that are like, oh, yeah, I drink a glass of water a day. And I, and I don't – and, of course, and I look at them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Head like, explosion emoticon. Head explosion emoticon. I'm like, oh, how are you functioning? And then yeah. I realize, well, they're not functioning. That's why they're here. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you are dealing with dehydration and then you actually start to understand what real hydration is, what that looks like, what is it? For you, <laughs> that's my big shungite cube. Oh, you got a shungite. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a good idea. Have shungite. We'll travel. Right. I've got my stones on. I can't tape this one to me. Probably though. not. It's um, it's about it's about two, what, five centimeters by five centimeters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good two pounds. Yeah. Maybe three. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now you said you have a shungite cube. We have I know. to tell people what a shungite cube is. Because you looked at me across the table. I was like, just, you... it caught my eye and I was like, wait, he's holding a cube. This is, is that my, a big block of wood? This is my shungite cube. Um, shungite is a stone that comes from Russia. 
Mm-hmm. And um, shungite naturally deters EMFs. So that's yes. that's that's the that's one of the the main things. Well, I don't that know it why does. you brought it. There are no EMFs in this. What room. do you mean? <laughs> I was trying to make sure my brain was going to function optimally. Well yes. Um, it does a lot of other things on a kind of metaphysical, spiritual level as well. Mm-hmm. Helps with grounding and things of that nature, and just protection and clearing. But uh, it's very well known for its EMF. EMF protection. Dispersion ability. Totally. Excellent. Yeah. Deflection. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so. so back to the hydration. So what most people don't realize is that when they start really hydrating and they learn, okay, I need this amount of water, um, I'm not getting it, yada, 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 um, it takes up to two weeks, sometimes three, of consistency in that zone of consuming the amount of water that you're supposed to be consuming to fully hydrate the system once you've been dehydrated. Mm. And so most people, they'll go, oh, well, you know, I started drinking my water. I don't feel any different. It's been a few days, whatever. And I'm like, this is, this takes some time. Mm. You know, it, take, it, takes, it takes an effort. Yeah, and I <clears> would <throat> also add to that that if someone's got, if someone's been dehydrated for a a long period of time, months yeah. or years of their life, and they start adding water, like just like any change, your body's going to have to assimilate to that. Absolutely. And we need to make sure that we're maybe giving people a bit of information about what, what we're talking about. Because we're not talking about chlorinated tap water, are we? No. Okay. Absolutely not. What's your pick? My mm-hmm. pick? Yeah. Well, since we live here in Boulder, Colorado, my, my pick is El Dorado Springs. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to, since we are fortunate enough to have a clean... Uh, spring water source that's full of minerals and the perfect alkalinity, then I go for Eldorado Springs in my glass bottles. Nice. <laughs> of course. All right. I get made fun of a lot for my bougie water. You do? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm cool with that. I don't, yeah. I don't really care if people call me a weird hippie or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm yeah. Like, whatever. Go for it. Okay, great. So it sounds like your recommendation is, is local spring water, if that's possible. Yeah. What about filtered waters? What happens when you... Yeah. When you strip the water of everything. You know, I think that when people have access to local spring water and they know it's a good source, it's good alkalinity, go for it. Because that's, you know, that's how, that's how nature intended it. Um, when you have to filter your water, obviously you start taking out all the minerals. You start taking out the natural sodium. You uh, change the alkalinity of the water. It typically becomes much more acidic and things like that. So if you're filtering water, it's great because... Uh, you want you want to get out the chlorines. You want to get out the chloramides. You want to get the fluoride out. You know you want to get <laughs> what fluoride? But I, what I like mean? taking other people's prescription drugs. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you like taking birth control? <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> a little Vicodin. <laughs> at, at homeopathic doses, I mean I figure they've got to do something good for me, right? Right. Right. <laughs> a little no. titration. Yeah. Sorry, my <laughs> sarcastometer is a little high today, but yeah. <laughs> Please continue. Yeah. So you start pulling all that stuff out, right? You want to get it out, but then you're left with this water that's, you know, doesn't have a lot of minerals, doesn't have nutrients, doesn't have what the water, life-giving water actually gives to us. And so at that point, you have to figure out how to put those things back in. Are you drinking Eldorado and just getting minerals from that? Are you supplementing with any additional minerals? I do not supplement with any additional minerals. I just stick with Eldorado Springs. They have a really good mineral profile. Their alkalinity is awesome. Yeah. Um, so I just stick with that. Yeah. And I, I can, and it was interesting. I, I used to live in a home where we had well water that was clean and great. And so that was, that was awesome. Um, and there was a transition period where I had 
you know, our, our best option was reverse osmosis because I had to get the fluoride and all the stuff out somehow. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely say that in that time of having to drink the reverse osmosis water and put minerals back in, it was much harder to stay hydrated. Interesting. I had a very hard time, like, actually keeping that water in my body. Yeah, so that brings me to a topic <clears throat> I feel like some of my clients start drinking water and they notice they're peeing a lot more at oh, first. Yeah. yeah. And that probably goes to our comment about letting the body learn to take yeah. that water in and really have it saturate your tissues properly, right? Yeah. And I'll typically, um, you know, I used to, one of the things that I've tried to, to shift about my coaching and training after, you know, 25 years is, um, it, you know, we get this knowledge, right? We, we learn things. We're like, oh my God, how can, oh my, how are we even still alive? You know? <laughs> how are we even functioning? Um, and when somebody walks in and you're like, okay, half your body weight in ounces of water. And then if you're an athlete, then if you're in a high desert climate, like we are mm -hmm. and, 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 and we're adding, adding, adding mm -hmm. is that, you know, it's, it's giving them the tools to slowly increase that water intake. So not saying, okay, go start drinking a gallon of water right now because right. they're not going to retain most of that. They're just going to pee it out. It's going to come out. And then they might get discouraged and think totally. that you're nuts or yeah. whatever. And, and, yep. and nine out of 10 people get discouraged of like, I'm mm. in the bathroom all day long. Like I can't do it's this. Annoying. I can't do it. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm like, I know, I get it. And so I've just kind of switched over to that, like trying to be more, mm. more gentle, <laughs> a little more gentle. I'm like, okay, so just, we're going to increase this. You've been drinking one glass of water a day. Okay. We're going to start with two. <laughs> so we're going to try for two for a couple of days. Then we're going to increase it to three for a couple of days and then four. So it's more of this slow increase versus just bombarding their brains and their systems. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think that's what Paul would refer to as a rainbow bridge, which is the concept that if you see a client who walks through your door and just metaphorically, maybe they're running at 22% of what you think they can run at. Right. You don't take them to 100 or 99 on the first week or the first day. It's right. too much. You yeah. have to recognize that the client has a life. They have habits. And maybe they're drinking beer yeah. five nights a week. Totally. So rainbow <laughs> bridge would be, okay, we got to make a change here. Right. You don't go five nights a week to zero. Maybe it's half the quantity at first. And then after a month when they start to trust you and they see positive results from the changes you're recommending, then yeah. you say, don't you feel better now? Yeah, I feel better. I'm drinking less beer. I think that had to do with it. And I also lost weight. Okay. Maybe instead of five nights a week, we can trim it down to, to two, yeah. you know, and that's then eventually your master plan is to keep pushing all the buttons and then demonstrating to them that your program is helping them feel healthier. And that's where true effective change happens because not every change has to be about a, an air quotes sacrifice or giving up the things that you love. Right. The other side of the tunnel is when you, as a client, you start to see the positive change and you feel so much healthier. You have such better energy. You can perform better. All those neck problems and back problems start to go away and you're lifting more weight than you've ever lifted or you're running faster than you've ever ran or whatever your goal is. And then it's not that you still give up or sacrifice. You choose to not drink beer even though you really want to. It's that you don't really want the beer anymore because you realize here's toxic poison right? and you've been actually, poisoning yourself for years. I actually feel better if I drank less. <laughs> right. And right. then it becomes a natural choice. Yeah. I think it's a concept that perhaps escapes some people. Yeah. Well, it's, I think that, and I, I was thinking about this earlier today, it's that very few people actually 
know what running their body functioning at 100% feels like. How high-performance athletes, we get to experience that at some point where we've... Hopefully. Hopefully, right? Yeah. And not all, but hopefully right. at some point, your really your top performers are, are some, finding some kind of flow state, like you said, where they're just 100%. The body is just cranking. Everything's in alignment. It's all mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. And uh, very few people, I think, ever, ever experience that. And so when they come in to see people like you and I, it's like it's just so much fun to, just to start baby stepping them with it. Like most people don't know what it's like to feel hydrated. You've done some fasting, Nikki, in a mm -hmm. quasi-related left turn topic. Have you done any dry fasts, speaking of dehydration, or only water fasts? No, I've never done a dry fast. Mm. Um, I used to practice day, uh, once a week I would water fast. You know, like Sunday was kind of my my ritual days that I would fast. I'd water fast all day Sunday. I would technology fast. I would fast on Sunday. Um, and that was, that was nice. I gave my system a nice break. I gave it a reboot. Mm -hmm. It was great. Um, but I've also done some prolonged like fasting, I extended four or five, six days. I've never gone like super long with just water fasting, like weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, I found for just for my system and how my system works that it was just way too harsh for my system to do something like that for, for extended periods of time. So were you feeling pretty low energy by the time you came to day six? Yeah. 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 And that was, that was all water fast, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And do you feel that it was a healthy thing for you to do in the long term? Do you feel better after you rebounded and started eating again? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, um, I mean, I, I started doing fasting and cleansing and things like that when I was, I think, like 21 or 22. Oh. And that was kind of part of my trying to regain my health when all of the injuries and things were taking hold. Um, and so it's I've, I've never felt poorly or worse after doing any sort of cleanse or fast. It's always been, been a great benefit for me. And when you do your longer dry fast that are maybe four or six days, are you continuing to exercise or are you kind of cutting down on your exercise quite a bit? I typically cut down on the exercise. Mm -hmm. The output definitely goes down. Yeah. And I'll do more gentle things like yoga, aldellas, just walking, things like that, but nothing like super high impact, not a lot of exertion. It seems to me like a lot of athletes who have a pretty high output, especially more aerobic oriented athletes, tend to gravitate towards Later in their lives and their journeys, they tend to gravitate more towards keto because especially if you're an endurance athlete, you're a cyclist or a runner or something, it's just so carb intensive, right? Right. Um, in particular, if you're kind of old school, I mean, now they're keto athletes who are doing Ironman and stuff, yeah, which I absolutely. don't necessarily recommend, but depends on the athlete, I suppose, and how you're, how you're looking at it and how your system handles it. Everybody's an individual, but, uh, you know, the rebound from years of, Foods that generate a high insulin response, right. I'll say. Uh, the natural kind of rebound from that is, is keto, right? It's like your, your rebound girlfriend, I guess. <laughs> and <laughs> then you you learn to control your blood sugar. You're eating foods that help you stabilize blood sugar. And then maybe you find the limits on the other side, which I feel I've done. Um, have you played with keto a lot yourself? Two, let's maybe say two years ago, three years ago, like right when, right around the time keto started kind of gaining some momentum and it started to become, you know, the hot button word. Um, I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. Uh, I, I'm one of those people that I don't ask my clients to do anything I've not done. And I'm a, a big believer in walking, walking the talk. 
Yes. Like I don't, I'm not going to ask you to cleanse or fast or do anything that I haven't done or I don't know the side effects or any of those kinds of things. It's such a powerful tenant of real personal and health coaching, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're like, have you done this? Oh no, I don't know. No, but you should. <laughs> but you should. I'm not going <laughs> to. Better you than me. Right. No. Let me know how that goes. Let me know how it works out for you. Yeah. Um, so I did a, like a 30 day keto to try it out and just kind of get a feel for it. Um, I was also at that time in a situation where I was, um, dealing with a systemic infection that I had mm. and keto was supposed to be great for inflammation and whatnot. And so I, I went for it and initially I felt great. You know, my initial, ex my initial experience was super high energy. I mean, I was doing the, the brain octane, the MCT oil and the coffee, the yep. whole deal, the fasting, and then the, I did it full on. And initially it was, it was awesome. I like got the first week maybe you felt um, great? I would say I felt great for about the first two weeks even. Okay. You know, I was doing pretty well for like the first two, two and a half weeks. Lots of energy, brain, like super focused brain, um, felt very strong, um, I slept well, like super lean, like everything was just, I was in the, I was in the zone for sure. And then all of a sudden things started kind of going south. Like I started getting muscle cramps. I started losing muscle tissue. Ooh. And that's where it didn't work well for me. Interesting. And um, I started getting, um, you know, just weird muscle tension, muscle cramps. My sleep started to get interrupted because of that. Mm. Um, and like I said, I actually lost a lot of muscle tissue in as that like two and a half, three week period started. Like I could just feel myself. Um, so it's I, kind of my experience with it was that. I'm not sure it's something that's meant for long term. I don't think that we know enough yet. Like it's so new and it, it, there hasn't been enough time and bodies doing keto long enough with enough research to really know what are like the long term effects of doing keto. At least that's just kind of my observation. Um, when you're dealing with people who have a lot of inflammation in their bodies, they have hormonal disruptions and things of that, that nature. Um, you know, you're talking about your liver, right? You know, our liver is our main organ that really organizes hormones and filters and cleans and to have that much fat being bombarded into the system for the liver and gallbladder to deal with for a long period of time yep. logically doesn't make sense to me. Like I have a hard time wrapping my head around that for a long period of time. That would be okay. Yeah. Um, I can see why people do it in the short term you know, for a, a quick fix, mm -hmm. um, for whatever it is that they're dealing with, whether they're trying to lose weight or whatever. Um, yeah. and my biggest experience with people who have wanted to do keto or my clients that have wanted to do keto, it's been more for weight loss or just infl and, you know, they feel like it might help their inflammation. Um, but I've never really, I've yet to see someone really sustain it for a long period of time. Mm. Interesting. And I and I do wonder. I am very curious about the long term. Yeah. Health. Yeah. Do you study a lot of Peter Atia? I don't. He's one of the. I would say he's he's one of the guys to look at for a lot of keto resources, and he's mm -hmm. got a lot of practical information about it. And yeah. He has a technique now. Well, I think he was. I don't want to speak too much out of my. I've studied Peter some, not a ton, so I, I could be a little bit wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure he was full on keto for a, quite a while. He was one of the first people to work with Don Magostino on the 
first commercially available ketone esters. Mm -hmm. And now he has a thing called the nothing burger, which is a periodic. He, he's not continuously ketogenic. I, as I understand it, um, he, he does a nothing burger. And so that's a week of strict keto and then a week of fasting, water fasting, and then a week of strict keto, but then sandwiched around that <laughs> to use multiple sandwich layers and analogies. I'm getting hungry. Um, <laughs> is, I know, right? Is it dinner yet? Dinner time. Sandwich. Mm. Mm, uh, sandwich. On the other side is, I suppose, keto, you know, Peter's version of a normal diet, which right. does include some carbohydrates, <laughs> which are now being vilified, you know. Fat was vilified in the 80s. And yeah. Then protein, red meat will make you drop dead at the dinner table in 1994. Oh, now, now it's, it's carbs. carbs. Yeah. Or one of my favorite movie lines ever. I haven't had a car since 2003. <laughs> Janice trying to figure out what movie that's from. We're just going to let it hang. Just let it hang. I can't remember it either. It's Step Brothers. Picture his face. I can picture those abs. But because he pulls up his shirt. <laughs> He's like, look right. at these abs. He's like, look at these abs. <laughs> I haven't had a car since 2003. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's really impressive. Of course, it's like an ab double. You know, yeah. it's some dude who right. spends 15 hours a day doing sit-ups. Completely. Okay, so since we've been talking about food so much, here's your pop quiz. Okay. What did you have for breakfast this morning? So I am a modified faster for sure. So I, you know, I fast. I try to fast from 9 until 11. 9 right. at night until 11 at morning. Yeah, yeah. until 11 the so next day. you have a compressed day. food window. Yeah, I have a compressed yeah. food window. And um, my my breakfast every morning is a smoothie. I do, I do do the smoothies. You're a smoothie breakfast I person. I'm a smoothie breakfast person. I put a lot of coconut fat in it, a lot of co like heavy coconut cream fat. Yep. Um, it has spirulina in it. Um, it has collagen mm -hmm. in it and uh, fruit. Okay. Fresh fruit. Yes. Two cups of fresh fruit. Mm -hmm. Carbs. But there are carbs in that. Carbs in there. Oh Lots goodness. of carbs in there. Carbs are so bad for so you. Oh, good. <laughs> I put seaweed in it. And, like there's some herbs and things that mm. I put in there. Some Chinese herbs for my liver health. Nice. Yeah. Have you studied a lot of West Indian Price stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So they've got some great articles on why carbs are essential. Yeah, important absolutely and how and the differences in particular i think one one aspect that is easy to miss is the difference between a refined carb and a carbohydrate that is a lot less refined or not refined at all yeah for example a below ground vegetable like a sweet potato right so that might be a good resource we'll yeah. uh we'll find that put it in the show notes too you know i've been all over the board in and how I've eaten, what I've tried, the different fat diets, you know, keto, no carbs, no fat, high fat, all the fat, no protein, uh -huh. vegan. I was vegan for a long time. You were. Uh, I tried that out. How'd that go? <laughs> uh, that didn't work out so well. Didn't work out so well. No. <laughs> how long were you vegan? Uh, about a year. Okay. And I committed to it for a year. And uh, just- Like Paul. I, yeah, it did not, didn't work out for me. I was very sick when I was a vegan. Uh, mm. I was very low energy. I mm. think I may have, did I end up with mono that year or bronchitis or something? I mean, like it, it was not good. Wow. It really didn't work well for me. I was overweight. I was heavy. Mm. Um, yeah, it was not good. Mm. Uh, but I, that's interesting. What I've, what I've learned, my kind of my takeaway in the whole food world of nutrition and this like insanity that people have to surf through every day here in America is... Um, you mean the supermarket. That's the insanity oh you're referring to, right? Gosh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
the supermarket, the media, everything. Costco. I mean, people are yeah. just being, you know, so bombarded and overwhelmed with information of what's right, what's wrong, eat this, don't eat this, they eat this. Like you said, next year, now we don't eat that. I mean, it, it's yeah. insane. And I yeah. just, it's crazy. Um, but my, my biggest takeaway has been that there's a season for everything. And that just because what you ate last year or the diet you predominantly consumed last year was working for you, as you shift and change and as your stressors change and as your hormones change and as your age changes and your environment changes, your dietary needs change. And I think the hard thing for people is that we're so out of touch with our bodies generally you know, unless you're one of those highly fine tuned people that's like really into your body and you love food and you, you know, like me, like you, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're just like, we're fanatics about it. You know, we, we're just nerds about it. We love, I love experimenting with my meat suit, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what's this going to do? If I do mm-hmm. this, what's going to happen? And, and yep. you know, I'm totally into it. Not most people aren't like that. Mm. And so I think the hard thing is that so many people are just so out of touch with their bodies and what affects how they feel, like what affects their performance, what affects their brain. You know, they have no idea that if they're slightly dehydrated, their brain's going to lose 30% of its function and they can't figure out like, why can't I quite, why can't I remember X, Y, and Z? Um, And so most people are just running on autopilot at this point. You know, they're running on autopilot around food. They're looking for some program to follow. Somebody please just tell me what to do do. because I don't know what to do. It's confusing. I'm overwhelmed. The rest of my life is already overwhelming. How am I supposed to figure this out? And I'm just not a believer in a one, a one food plan that, that does it for every single person on this planet that does not work. Mm -hmm. Um, I've gone through periods where I need tons of protein and I eat lots of protein with all my meals and I'll consume 100, 125 grams of protein a day. Currently, the way my body has changed, the way my environment and my stressors have changed, I could probably consume half that amount. Mm. And I feel great. You know, I feel good that way. I sleep well that way. Like, Yeah, that's a great point. I think people, I imagine that people are looking for an answer to, you know, what should I eat? What should I do? What exercise should I do? And they yeah. want that answer and it's easy to assume that that answer might go forever. Yeah. But as you yeah. pointed out, like if you're, your environmental stressors, your life stressors, your work, the environment you work in, whether you're commuting to your work in a car for 45 minutes or riding your bike for 12 minutes, whether how, what your exercise load is, where you move to. Did you live in, in Florida or Colorado? Yeah. like Totally different places. Everything. Different yeah. humidity, different demands, different atmospheric pressure. All yeah. these things are going to influence your the outcome of all the stressors are going to be felt in your biological spacesuit. Totally. Right? Yeah. That's your body, by the way, in case you missed that translation. (laughs) It's a touchy topic for me when people start talking about food because uh, clients come in and they're like, oh, my girlfriend did this. Or, you know, when I was 30, when I was 40, 10 years ago, five years ago, and I'm just like, Mm. you know, it's hard for me to not roll my eyes. (laughs) I think it's human nature. I get the same. I have the same experience with my athletes who had a great season of racing in yeah. 2012. And when things aren't going well, sometimes they'll call me up or email me and be like, "Hey, we just did this. This is the program I did. Can I just do it over again?" Well, yeah, yeah you can, but 
don't expect the same result. Mm-mm. You're not the same person. You're not no. the same human. No. You've had six or eight or 10 more years of racing in your, in your legs and weight training or strength and conditioning and all these things. And you crashed and fell off a cliff or right. whatever has happened to all of us. That, right. You had a baby. <laughs> yes. Right. You what? You which, know, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. Which only has a small impact on. Very, very small. Very small. Very small. small impact. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You you do a lot of work with women who have had children. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. us maybe a little bit about that. How what what are your common findings? What do you what do you see in your clientele? What I would say is is the biggest challenge post pregnancy. Um, and I don't know if this is I, I doubt that this is across across the world, but here in Boulder, um, is that doctors. Doctors often tell them to resume activity, you know, oh, give yourself five or six weeks, slowly resume activity as you feel okay. Like they don't, there's not a, a, a large, um, they don't give them a lot of parameters. You know, there's not a lot of guidance with how to return back to activity after pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And um, here in Boulder, we obviously have a very active crowd. You know, mm-hmm. runners, hikers, bikers, just, you know, whether they're professional athletes or just, you know, very active people. Yeah. And um, what I find is that m- many of the women here have uh, are shocked after they have a baby mm. as to how their body feels. They're just shocked. They're shocked as to how their hips work, how their pelvis feels, how their back feels, their energy levels. Um and they go into it thinking, doctor said six to eight weeks. Why can't I run right now? Everything will be normal. Everything will be normal. They're like, yeah. I can't hold my urine. You know, like mm. in these, and so they're they're pretty shocked as yeah. to how how much the body does change with pregnancy, and they're they're more so shocked as to how long it takes to really heal after that for mm-hmm. the pelvic floor to heal for the the core system to, to fully heal for everything to start to come back to what is something that resembles normal but is actually never never the same never, num- never yeah. normal again yeah i mean we're talking about your fascial system it's getting yeah. stretched and pulled the hormones are changing like the entire environment of the body is getting changed drastically mm-hmm. and so um i think that for for most women that that's just a hard thing to wrap their mind around and i watch them go through that realization that oh my god like this is this is going to take a while and i just really just want to go for a run i just want to go for a hike yeah um there's a woman who i worked with at one point who um she was a, a very uh intense runner and she you know ran marathons and half marathons and um she ran her first marathon within i believe six weeks of having a baby and cracked her pelvis oh and i and i just you know i I stop and i'm like why didn't who told you that was okay okay. (laughs) you know who told you that was okay or who didn't tell you that's not or who didn't tell you that right (laughs) yeah yeah that's unfortunate Yeah. yeah and so i just really try to work from a place of of truly educating women mm-hmm. and putting the facts in front of them of like, I, you know, I, I just worked with a woman, uh, for instance, who I got to be with her from conception through birth. And now mm-hmm. it's a year later. Right. And I, from the, from the beginning, I said, 
get strong now. We're going to get strong right. now. Right. Because the stronger you are going into this, the faster your recovery will be. Mm-hmm. And understand that when the baby comes out, you're not going to do anything for a while. Like if you really do want to heal, you're not going to do anything for a while. Just mm-hmm. be with your baby. Take it easy. Let your body heal. Yeah. There's no reason to run. There's no reason to, to even walk that much. Like you mm-hmm. just need to chill out. Yeah. Like if you want, if you want it to be <laughs> somewhat normal again, you're gonna have to just let yourself heal. Yeah. And so it was a little bit easier for her because she knew I, you know, I educated her quite a bit going into it of like this is what to expect. This you is coached what, her through it. This is what's yeah. really gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just forget all the stories and the pictures and the stuff that you hear and the, you know, the you know, because of course there's those stories you see of these crazy athletes that like pop out a baby and then they're, <laughs> you know, and then they're running the next day and. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't, you don't know what's going on behind closed mm. doors. I'm like, just let go of all of that and mm. know this is going to be, it's a process. As humans, we tend to, we like sensationalism. So we tend to sometimes gravitate towards stories like you see on Instagram, you know, that this woman gave birth and then four days later, she's running a marathon or across yeah. the Arctic circle or right. whatever's going on, you know, yeah. and that's great. But also we have to recognize that because of the diversity of the human race, because of the fact that, well, to use my one of my favorite Paul checkisms, God is a novelty generator. Everyone is as unique as their fingerprint. We we have these super freaks who can handle. We have Jocko Willink. Of course. We have women who can give birth yeah. and then five days later go run a marathon or whatever, and they're okay. Right. But those people are one in eight billion, just totally. as you are. But they're just one in eight billion on the certain end of the spectrum. Right. And you're not so much on the end. No. Most of us aren't. Most of us aren't. And I include me very much in that that I mean, I am an elite athlete and when I went to Paul's course and took my take my tests. Oh yeah, that's most right. Most of them I do really well. <laughs> right? When I look at my own internal testing, like I'm I look at my HAQ and it's yeah. the scores are quite low compared to right. some of my colleagues even. That doesn't make me any better or worse. It's just the score that I have at the moment. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean I don't have my own work to do. But my point is, arguably, in some ways, I have a, a robust amount of physical health that I can be quite gratitude. Grat- I can have a lot of gratitude for. But I'm no, I'm no Jocko Willink. That's for sure. Right. If I tried to do what he does, I would get crushed and my health would be destroyed. Right. So when I hold him as a false idol and I try to equate in my own life, what Jocko does or pick any other model who's on that level. Right. It's not necessarily going to serve me. And I hope people can take something from that sentiment because we need to recognize there's a Delta between, between us and everyone else, but also they're the super freaks. You have to do what's right for you. I mean, I guess that's kind of the theme, right? It's the same thing. Like you were saying about diet. Did you happen to hear Paul's podcast with Wade Lightheart? He's been a vegan and he's a he is a bodybuilder, like a world class yeah, bodybuilder. He's right. really accomplished. He's been a vegan for I think twenty five years or something. Yeah. Now clearly those two don't go together very commonly. But it's working for Wade and he's healthy and he's doing well, he's prospering. But right. probably most bodybuilders couldn't pull that off. Most right. humans couldn't pull that off. So I'd call Wade a super freak, and I mean that in the most complimentary yeah, sense. Absolutely. I guess maybe the takeaway that you might agree with is dogmatic adherence to any dietary philosophy is just not really constructive just to go philosophical wormhole for a minute when you work with various plant medicines and have an entheogenic experience part of the idea is that you 
intentionally elicit a death of ego. Yeah. That's part of the point is to smash those walls down. Right. And for a lot of people, that can be quite terrifying mm -hmm. because they do identify with those walls as them. If you want a warm-up course or a prologue, the easy way to do that is begin to meditate and separate yourself from your thoughts. Realize that you are not the thoughts that are passing through your head. Those thoughts are just like clouds going by on a nice happy day at the park. And you can look at the clouds and say, that one looks like a dinosaur. Or that one looks like Billy Bob Thornton. Totally. Or whatever's going through your head. <laughs> But that cloud is not me, it's a cloud. And thoughts are the same way. And when you learn to dissociate from those thoughts, then you learn to detach from your reactivity. And the way you walk through the world, you begin to slowly disassemble your, your default mode network. Right. The term that I have heard that's a good one is a survival machinery. Survival machinery. <laughs> survival oh, that is good. Survival machinery, uh -huh. yes. Yes. So we're equipped with our survival machinery. Yeah. That bring to me that brings about an image of like almost like a Terminator suit, totally. or not a Terminator suit, but a, a what's that movie with the RoboCop? Yeah, like a RoboCop suit. Yeah, right, like a big electronic kind of walking thing. Or in the second Matrix, I think I'm like five for five on Matrix references. <laughs> Just gonna keep it rolling. I mean, it is one of the best series ever made, especially the first one. Okay, now we're on to Nikki's dream, goal, or objective? My dream, my goal, my objective. In 41 years, I have been through a lot with my body. I've been through a lot with my body. I've had more injuries, more car accidents, more traumas, more health issues than some people will ever experience in multiple lifetimes, if you believe in that. Um, and, and I've learned a lot because of that. You know, I've learned a lot because of that. I've studied with so many different people. I've worked with so many different practitioners. I've tried everything. Um, and so my kind of dream goal objective is really to be able to share what I've learned on a much larger platform. Um, you know, I work predominantly one-on-one -on -one with people and we do also have classes and groups and things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm ready to just really start sharing that on a much larger platform to be able to reach more people. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like with the experience that I have had, you know, it's, it's been a blessing. You know, I used to, when I was younger, I looked at it as like, you know, total victim, like, why me? Why? <laughs> I'm only 28. Why is this happening? You gotta be kidding me. But as my, as, as I started to gain some wisdom and got a little bit older, oh, uh, you know, I realized that it was, it was a blessing and that with every, challenge I had, there was something much deeper to heal, much deeper to work with there. One of the big things is, is being able to share that with people because I, I find that clients that come in with what, whatever their issues are, whether it's gut issues, weight issues, structural issues, depression, whatever it is, um, and they talk to me about what their therapist is telling them to do and what this person has told them to do. and. I, they're they're so only getting a fraction of the information that they mm. need to really heal, yeah. to, to really truly heal, not just band-aid it, not just, you know, give them a little bit of relief. So that's that's where I just want to be able to reach people on a much larger platform and really, really be able to utilize what I've learned 
mm-hmm. and how I've grown to, to help other people heal. Back to my original analogy about the time traveler and the folding of the hip and the global tension on yeah. that, what I call the posterior line, right? Which is an anatomy trains kind of yeah. concept and the head periscoping. But super applicable. You think that is, I mean, was I way off base there? Is that, no, that's what right. I see. But you've studied this quite a bit further yeah. than I have, so no, it's t- it's totally applicable, and you're you're dead on as far as you know, because there there still are going to be certain patterns, certain people that hold true to that that, that specific of, concept yeah. that's, that's still going to show up, mm-hmm. and that might be their overriding pattern or their overriding train, whatever's whatever's going on. Right. But then it's a matter of really getting even deeper into that and saying, okay, from that, from that, that train, from, from that pattern, mm-hmm. now what's happening outside of that? Right. Like what is, what is this branching out into? What kinds of problems is this causing in the rest of the system yep. aside from just that line? The three, four, five D parts of the system. Right. Thank you so much for taking time to come and chat with me tonight. That was cool. This was fun. Disclaimer. Listen up, monkeys. The ramblings on this podcast represent me and me alone. They're not indicative of the thoughts or opinions of Fast Labs or Chris Case or Trevor Connor or anyone else. Also, None of this advice is intended to prescribe or diagnose anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So just want to be clear on those points. Thanks for listening.